This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. How's it going? Thank you so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. I'm an ag recruiter. So if you know anybody looking to hire or be hired in ag tech or agribusiness, send me an email, tim at aggrad.com. This show is part of the Farm and Rural Ag Network. So if ag podcasts like this are your thing, also vlogs and blogs, head over to farmruralag.com and check those out. Well, I hope you enjoyed episode 159 a couple weeks ago with Dr. David Zetlin talking about water economics, because water, especially in those areas that rely on irrigation, is a make or break issue for the future of agriculture. I mean, the stakes could not be higher. And there's so much nuance in water issues, everything from, you know, historic rights to urban versus rural to groundwater versus surface water. And I mean, there's just there's so much to talk about. And so I'm excited just to dedicate a few episodes this summer to water. And you've heard kind of the economist perspective. And I think this fits really nicely into this discussion in our guest today, who is Adam Borchard. Adam is regulatory advocate and lobbyist with the Association of California Water Agencies, an acronym that is ACWA, but everybody calls it AQUA, not to be confused with the correct spelling of aqua it's acwa but they are a trade association that represents local governments that provide water for farms and cities they have 450 members both rural and urban all in california the association's been around since 1910 and adam's role is to track and monitor new regulations for both proposed and finalized legislation that might affect these water agencies throughout california everything related to water quality supply ag water and beyond. Adam grew up on a farm in Northern California. He's a graduate of my alma mater, UC Davis, with his undergrad, and then got his law degree at the McGeorge Law School there in Sacramento. I think you're going to really enjoy this glimpse into water policy, but also just kind of how water works. Who's at the helm of making decisions on a day-to-day basis for water? Adam's going to start off by giving us just a little bit of historical context about California water issues. It goes back actually to the 1880s with the Wright Act. There was a need to create a form of government that would be able to assess land and tax landowners and land holdings and be able to raise revenue bonds and also to use eminent domain for irrigation projects, flood control projects, and be able to do some sort of centralized planning in California on the local level. And there's a whole proliferation of them. And it's not just they've expanded their purpose beyond just water and irrigation, water reclamation, municipal water service, and then the non-water space. There's wastewater. There's air control districts in California. Uh, In fact, a lot of our farmers have to comply with local air quality standards and mandates from local air resource agencies. And then returning back to water, there's also these groundwater sustainability agencies that have been established with the passage of the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. And their principal purpose is to manage groundwater in a region in a basin in California. 
Okay. Give us an example of one of these agencies and like, you know, what's something that they, and I know that the Sustainable Groundwater Act is something that's probably top of mind right now, but they're run by boards that are elected and what types of decisions are they making on a regular basis? Yeah. So they are elected by the local landowners or by voters in their district. For example, Water Agency is one of our members. They provide irrigation water in Yuba County in Northern California. So they deliver water to growers on a schedule. They provide the service by rates, also by they have a local taxation on uh, water users and landowners. They raise revenue bonds for construction projects. They operate dams and facilities, conveyance facilities, canals, ditches. They operate those. Yeah. Who owns water? So I know that's a that's a can of worms in that. <laughs> that that is a can of worms in Northern California. We like to say we own, and I'm speaking as in we because Sacramento is in Northern California. People in the North State like to say they own the water. It's actually owned by the state of California, and the state owns it as a trustee on behalf of the people of California, and it's considered a public good. And so, it's actually in, in our constitution, our state constitution, that uh, the state holds water as trustee and regulates it for reasonable beneficial use. And what protection does a farmer have if, if for example, if they've invested millions of dollars in, in, in a farming operation and they rely on water to, you know, to produce a crop, what assurances do they have that they're never going to lose their water? It's mostly through a water right, and their water service is either guaranteed by their own individual water right, and that can be to a surface source such as a creek or a stream or a slough either adjoining the property or that they have an appropriation, appropriative water permit to, or they are provided water service under a water right held by an irrigation district or a water agency. Can you give us just some background? I'm sure there's listeners that have never been to California and so maybe don't understand a little bit of the context when it comes to water issues. Can you give us just a high level background on on water issues in California? Yeah, well, I think the best way to describe, I think the best way to kind of introduce this is to kind of give a lay of the land of California because most people, when they think of California, they think of either mostly LA and Southern California or San Francisco. And there is definitely a lot more to California. It stretches 10 degrees of latitude. And I think we've got every climate other than Arctic tundra and tropical rainforest. So we have beaches, we have mountains, but we also have sand dunes and glaciers in California. Hmm. And California is definitely a land of perlatives, extremes, and discrepancies. Two-thirds of our rainfall happens in the north part of the state, but two-thirds of our population is in the south part of the state. So we have an inherent natural and social imbalance in the state where we've got the water resources where we don't have the people and we have the people where we don't have the water. So, And likewise with agriculture, we do have many parts of the state that could not suffice or could not thrive without man-made irrigation. It's dry in California, in the Central Valley, pretty much from end of April or May until October or November. So to be able to have the largest farm state in the union with 
and agricultural production valued at over $50 billion and 400 crops, you have to be able to man-made manage water. And that means developing reservoirs, developing storage projects, and then being able to move them reliably. And what do you tell people who say, well, water, gosh, it must be hard to get excited about that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's true. I mean, there are some people that say, you know, farming is also hard to get into. I mean, you're on the farm. There's not a lot of action. But, you know, water in California, I'm kind of, I've adopted the phrase that, or the saying that water is the unwritten constitution of California and that the development of California really, and the pun intended, flows with the development of water. We just could not develop California as it currently is without the, frankly, the manipulation of water, taking it from its natural state and rerouting across the state. Our largest rivers are man-made rivers, the California Aqueduct, the Delta Mendota Canal, the Tehama Calusa Canal. These are really important water infrastructure projects that without them, we couldn't have the major agricultural and also urban development in the state. And because of that, we have we have great economic uh, powerhouses. What's kind of the hardest project you've had to work on recently? I'd say the hardest project has been implementation of the water storage investment program. And for the purpose of your of your listeners, back in 2014, when California was in the height of our most recent severest drought that we've had on record for over 500 years, actually, the voters passed the water storage investment program as part of Proposition 1. And that bond, that proposition provides $7.5 billion dollars in water project bond funding. Part of that 2.7 billion was for new water storage projects. And it was the first infusion of statewide dollars since I believe the 70s or 80s for new water projects. And in the 21st century, water projects, water storage projects aren't just a dam on a stream and you have a new surface reservoir. It's in some cases an off-stream reservoir where you're plugging up a valley and then you're pumping water during high flows when there's a surplus of water in the system into a reservoir or it's using injection wells where you're actually taking water that's available and then you're pumping into the ground and using the ground essentially as an underground storage unit. So in 2014 after we passed after the California voters passed that proposition, the state deliberated uh, or promulgated new regulations, drafted them and promulgated new regulations. And last year, in the summer of 2018, the California Water Commission allotted $2.5 billion to, I believe, eight different uh, water projects across the state. And some of the bigger ones include the Satch Reservoir, which will be a 2 million acre foot surface reservoir in uh, Northern California and an acre foot of water is roughly 326,000 gallons and it's enough in California to supply, I believe, a family of four for a year to two years. So that's one project. There are a few groundwater projects that receive funding, a couple urban water storage projects that will be enlarged in in the greater San Francisco Bay Area. 
And so currently where this process is at is the Water Commission is working to develop contracts that will allot what are considered public benefits. And these public benefits include flood control, ecosystem restoration, and recreation that project applicants must provide and as part of receiving this bond funding. So that's the current toughest assignment that I'm working on right now. Interesting. Can you talk a little bit about water quality? Water quality is something that, you know, obviously everyone knows the importance of having high quality water that's, you know, safe and clean and healthy and all that. But I mean, from your standpoint, how are your members dealing with water quality and and how does that look in, in practice for them? Yeah, there are a couple of areas of water quality regulation that agricultural and urban water providers have to comply with. There's the state and federal Clean Water Acts, which regulate water quality for different purposes, ensures that water is to a certain standard that is fishable or swimmable in in streams and rivers across California. And then there's also the state and federal Safe Drinking Water Acts, and that both of those acts provide minimum standards for water quality protection with respect to municipal drinking water sources. So there is an inner there is a connection and interrelationship between the two. We have a lot of communities in California that are adjacent to farmland. And so the impacts of farming activities such as fertilizer, pesticide application, when you do have that application, there can be an impact to the local water quality, and there is a need to make sure that you do protect the local the local community's drinking water supply. So that has been a, an ongoing issue. It's become a more acute issue more recently in California, particularly when the drought happened and we saw diminished water supply, but then we also saw some deteriorating water quality because there was fewer, there was less supplies. So there was a greater relative amount of water that had relatively deteriorated water quality. Hmm. Is that kind of like a getting to the bottom of the barrel type of thing? I mean, to use an analogy, I'm just curious about why you'd have more water quality issues uh, under drought conditions. Yeah, it's essentially you're diminishing, you have a smaller pie, so you don't have as much source that could dilute essentially the amount of chemicals in the water, in the water source. Okay. And generally, California does have very good water quality. I think about 98% of the state's population is served by very good, clean drinking water. And But we do have some problem areas where there are some geologic water quality concerns, but then also water quality issues have arisen from industrial and man-made activities. Gotcha. And and do your members, the, the water agencies, do they have anything to do with groundwater or is groundwater kind of more individual uh, if they're pumping it out of the ground? It, it can be individual, but a lot of our members do have, as their sources of water, groundwater aquifers. And with the passage, passage of the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, also known as SIGMA in 2014, and the creation of these local water agencies called 
Groundwater Sustainability Agencies, GSAs, a lot of our members are involved in managing groundwater resources. I seem to recall, I think at the height of the drought, stories of farmers saying, you know, they're, they're worried they're going to they're gonna lose their water. So what I guess what I'm still not 100% clear on is if they have the water rights, even in, in times of drought, can those water rights be revoked and under what conditions can that happen? Yeah, they can be revoked. So based on the seniority of water rights, so we've got, and so California, we're a hybrid water rights system. We adopted the common law, the English common law, where if you have property that is adjacent to a water course, you have the right to use that full stream of water. But we have also adopted an appropriate water rights system where people apply for a permit, they apply for a water right, and based on their relative order, they will have that water available for them. So we have the principle first in time, first in right. So for our very senior water rights holders, they're usually not impacted unless it's the most severe droughts. And we did see that in California in 2015, where even some of the pre-1914, I say 1914 because that was a watershed year, I guess another pun intended, watershed year where our modern water permitting system went into effect. So before that, you're considered very senior. After that, you're considered more junior. So our more junior water rights holders were cut off, so they did not have water available. And in some cases, they had to fallow land. You did see, you know, farmers for the most part in California are fairly diversified. You're seeing an increase in more permanent crops with trees and with nuts and orchards, almonds, pistachios, walnuts, but you still have a lot of row crops, processing vegetables, even some cotton still. So farmers for the most part, they, when they were faced in the drought with diminished water supplies, they essentially followed their row crop land and tried to preserve whatever water they had for their permanent crops, for their orchards. Where they didn't have sources to surface water, they drilled wells. And we saw a lot of well drilling in 2013, 2014. And then it was right around that time that the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act was passed in the legislature because there was a concern that we've just, the water table essentially was dropping too low on the whole with the amount of groundwater that was needed for maintaining agricultural production. It would seem to me that just kind of a, at a high level, you know, there's a limited supply. At, at some point, there's a limited supply of, of fresh water. You've got the population of California continuing to expand, the demands of our agricultural systems continuing to become more severe. Uh, you know, at some point, you would think something's got to give. Do you, do you worry kind of long term about the sustainability of the system? And, and if not, you know, what, what's it going to take to, to kind of make sure that everybody gets what they need? Well, I think the most recent drought we had from 2012 to 2016, I think that was the major wake-up call. Definitely brought water to the forefront for a lot of people in California. We actually had billboards that said, conserve water. And that was kind of the first, or at least the first instance in the modern era where we saw that happening in California. Really, lay people were concerned about water and the availability of it. I think because of that, California did pass the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. California had been the last state in the union, even after Texas, we still did not have a comprehensive 
groundwater management system in place statewide. We had a few statewide requirements for water management, but in terms of comprehensive regulation, Sigma brought that about. And what Sigma has done is it's required agencies and farmers and also cities to come together, form these groundwater sustainability agencies, which almost everyone did by last year, actually by 2017. And they are now developing what are called groundwater sustainability plans, GSPs. And the areas that are most impacted, high and medium priority groundwater basins that are in areas of critical overdraft where they're taking you know, basically they're taking way too much out of the system that is being replenished. They are responsible for coming up and required to come up with these plans by January 31st of 2020. So we're looking at a very pending deadline coming up where locals are going to have to finalize development of these plans and then submit them to the state. And if they don't, if they don't meet the sufficiency required under Sigma, the state will then come in and regulate these systems. And I guess the beauty of Sigma, and it was still very, it it was unpopular in certain regions of the state and still unpopular today, given its regulatory requirements. The one benefit of it is it did put the onus on locals to manage their local water supplies based on their history and conditions. But if they don't, if they don't collaborate, if they don't have something in place, the state will then regulate. So I think that is the biggest challenge. That's kind of the most immediate challenge in kind of the more critical areas of the state that they do finalize the development of these plans and submit them to the state by next year. And they have a 20-year horizon where they're supposed to achieve sustainability, where they are going to have to be able to take out what they put in to the basin. How hard is that That's, going to be for, for some of these groups? I mean, how far off from that goal are they? In terms of the plans, it does vary. None of the plans have been submitted yet. It's kind of a lot of people are playing a game of chicken, seeing who's going to blink first. No one wants to be the very first guinea pig here, but there have been a lot of meetings, workshops, development of water budgets, what the flow is in a basin, what's the outflow. So I think, to be honest, I don't know, but we will know in the next six months how far along these proposals are. In terms of long-term estimates, though, there have been a few studies of potential impacts by Sigma, and it could be upwards of 500,000 acres that are fallowed. Wow. That could very well be a conservative estimate. There are some estimates where it's more like a million acres of uh, agland that are fallowed, but we're hoping it will be a more conservative amount. But it's going to require a lot of ingenuity at the local level, a lot of deal making, a lot of trade. It's going to require locals really putting their heads together and figuring out how can we, how can we manage this? Because we know if we don't, everyone's going to lose. Absolutely. Yeah. No, nobody wants that. Do you ever see a, a more privatized solution? I've heard people talk about like water trading, almost like a kind of cap and trade type scenario in California water. Do you ever see something like that being feasible? It's, it could be feasible. I think it's 
I know on the energy side, it has been a little bit more successful developing more of a private market. I think in California, because they're, because water is such an elemental use for life, I don't, I don't see it being as, as successful because it does have to meet certain public requirements because water is a public good in California. Okay. Lastly here, and I really appreciate you allowing me to just kind of pepper you with questions from all angles, but uh, as you, as you look to the future, what do you see as, as sort of the next issue that is going to need to be tackled? Maybe it'll be soon, you know, or maybe it'll be years from now, but sooner or later, something that's going to have to get worked out. I think, like I mentioned, it's successful implementation of Sigma. Just what the sustainability of our groundwater resources looks like. The deadline is 2040 for some bases, 2042 and others. We know the current balance is not working. And how do we best, I guess, how do we best value the price of water? That's, I guess, probably the existential question is, what is the value of water in terms of all the uses for it, how it is delivered, and yeah, what's the price of water? Very cool. Well, Adam, anything I didn't get a chance to ask you about that we really need to talk about if we're going to talk California water? I think that's it for the most part. I guess one aspect relating to your previous question about biggest impact will be on climate. We are seeing drier, on average, much drier years, but in California, there's really no such thing as a normal year. We've got dry years, and then we have a very wet year, and then a few more dry years. So being able to provide reliable water management and deliveries in a time of potential climactic chaos, I think, will be a big challenge as well. And actually sparked one more question I have for you. Yeah. Uh, do, do you ever have sort of infighting between members that you represent both of them, but they're maybe not getting along when it comes to how they're treating each other in, in terms of water? Certainly. I mean, we still have, you know, I did say we're generally moving in, from an era of conflict to an era of collaboration. There are still some remaining conflicts in California water where you do see interests going different camps. There are some conflicts between ag and urban water users. The biggest one still that divides the water community is management of the Delta, specifically the Twin Tunnels. Now, one tunnel of the California Water Fix, that's the plan to develop a conveyance system through the Delta. The objective is to provide more reliable water service. There's still concern in Northern California that it's a Southern California water grab. That's certainly a position held by a lot of residents in the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta. So I'd say that's probably the, the most enduring legacy water issue. That's the third rail is on the Delta. All right, Adam, thank you so much for this. This is, I mean, you clearly, <laughs> you know so much about this that it's tough to cover it all in, in one hour, but I really, really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Yeah, absolutely. I, I you know, I do appreciate, I, I do have a passion for water. <laughs> it's definitely the livelihood of a lot of our cities. I mean, it certainly is a livelihood for our cities and farms in California. Uh, it's without doubt the most important natural resource we have. 
Thanks so much to Adam Borchard for being on the show. I thought that was a fantastic compliment to the episode we had earlier with Dr. David Zetlin, where Dr. Zetlin talked a lot more about the water economics. If you didn't catch that episode, you probably want to go back and listen to that one. And now Adam talking about more of the policy and also just how things happen sort of in practice in real life. I think we should all be paying attention to what's going on out there in California with the regulation of groundwater and how that plays out, because all water stressed areas that rely on irrigation are probably going to want to see how all that works, just in case that same sort of concept might be coming to your area. And I just find this water stuff so fascinating. I appreciate you bearing with me as we explore these topics, because it's very dynamic and very much an important part of the future of agriculture. It's time now for our five-minute farmer segment. This is a segment in which we highlight a producer, so farmer or rancher, that is doing something to sell directly to consumers, getting closer to the consumer with their own product. And for today's episode, we're going up to central Montana, near the crazy mountains, near Tudot, Montana, to the McFarland White Ranch. The ranch has been in Laney White's family, she's the fourth generation, so for, for many, many years, their diversified cow-calf operation that grows a lot of their own forage, including alfalfa, grass hay, and barley. They also have a backgrounding lot, and in recent years, she's decided to start selling some beef to restaurants and directly to consumers there in Montana. I asked Laney if she could maybe just start off by giving us a high-level overview to how the beef are produced. They're all born here. We range calves. Generally, pretty benign, unassisted, nothing to it. It's pretty easy on a day like today. It's 50 degrees out and sunny. So from calving, we go into branding. Branding, we move up to the mountains, stay there until we wean. Wean, come down from the mountain. We do various processing, and then we lock the cattle up in our backgrounding lot through the winter. And then those they'll either stay here as replacement heifers, or they'll go out as you know, stalkers or maybe even directly into a feedlot. And as far as the hamburger cows, then they they live here on grass until the time to harvest them comes. Those that she calls hamburger cows are the head of cattle she chooses to raise for direct-to-consumer or to sell to restaurants in the Billings area. She calls it high-class hamburger, but the company overall, the beef company, has a name with a story behind it. The The name of the company is the Great Alone Cattle Company. And that is a nod to my grandmother. When she moved back to the ranch, she said that the ranch was the Great Alone. She wasn't exactly thrilled at the prospect of moving back. And she, you know, when she first got here, I think she felt quite isolated. And that isolation comes with other challenges when trying to grow a direct-to-consumer business, not only in being farther away from a big customer base, but farther away from the processing facilities, of which there are only four USDA-licensed processing facilities in the entire state of Montana. So Laney has to ship her cattle eight hours of way to Ronan to get them processed for sale at those restaurants. Another challenge has to do with finding qualified labor. Back when my, even my dad was going, there was a plethora of World War II vets who were kind of drifting around the country. So you could go down to the the train place in Tudot and get a whole new crew of guys who knew what they were doing and willing to work really hard. And so as as the number of people familiar and living the agriculture lifestyle has shrunk, I think the labor pool has shrunk dramatically. 
being a recruiter myself, I'll be honest, my ears perked up a little bit when Lainey started talking about her challenges of finding qualified people to help her out up there on the ranch. And as I asked more questions about specifically the challenges she was running into and finding the right people, Lainey reminded me of a a sobering reality of our industry, uh, that there are still people, predominantly men, that don't view everyone as equal, as the same. More specifically, Lainey was running into problems of men not comfortable working for a woman, which should shock you in 2019, but it is a a sad reality of some people in this industry. And Lainey's run into it in more cases than just trying to hire. Even, you know, taking cattle to be slaughtered, I'll you know, my brother will drive me and we'll get there and they'll be wanting to have the the cutting instructions. And so they'll start talking to my brother. Well, I mean, he doesn't know. He's the driver. (laughs) And then it gets really awkward when I'm like, well, actually, I'll tell you what to do with these cattle. (laughs) Thanks. It happens on sales calls too, or, you know, stuff like that. I'll, I'll go out to talk to a restaurant with my dad and they'll want to talk to my dad and then they'll they'll realize that they have to talk to me instead. One thing, it's really made my dad and my brother more aware that that kind of thing is alive and well. Hearing Lainey's experiences about this mentality certainly was eye-opening for me as someone who doesn't see it every single day, but does know it still exists out there and hopefully it won't exist out there very long into the future of agriculture. I asked her what kind of keeps her going with running a ranch and trying to grow this business and challenges such as the ones she's shared. What keeps her excited to keep doing this every day? Yeah, I mean, it's really fun. And one thing it does is give me the opportunity to interact with people outside of agriculture. And that's that's great. Make sure you connect with Lainey online. You can go to the ranch website, which is McFarlandWhiteRanch.com or the Great Alone Cattle Company. I know they've got a Facebook page you can check out there. She's also on Twitter at Lainey, L-A-N-I-E-O, White, W-H-I-T-E on Twitter. So check that out. And if you're ever up in Billings or in the Tudor area, you can always find some high-class hamburger brought to you by the Great Alone Cattle Company. Thanks for Lainey to be on the show, and I hope you will buy some of her beef the next chance you get. Hey, that is the end of sort of our pilot episodes of this five-minute farmer segment. If you haven't given me your feedback yet, I'd sure love to hear it. There will be a few episodes here going forward where we're going to take a break from it as I sort of retool and reassess as we want to keep doing this segment out forward. But we'd love your feedback. I'm on Twitter at Tim Hamrich or always Tim at AgGrad.com. But thank you so much for your time and your attention. The audience of this podcast is really what keeps me going every single week. And we will be back next week with another Ag Innovator. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Music.